Hello, everyone. After a week off from doing uh, the series on Jonah, we're back. And last time we discussed the question, why did Jonah run from God's call to preach to Nineveh? And as we saw, the issue was not so much that Jonah hated the Assyrians, though that was a pretty common response to uh, people who were not Assyrian, to the very brutal Assyrian nation. And it, and it wasn't because Jonah was say, a patriotic, nationalistic Jew, as, as some commentators have argued, nor is it the case that Jonah simply didn't like preaching the gospel. No, the reason Jonah fled was because he knew the book of Deuteronomy, and he knew the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. Two passages in Deuteronomy make that clear. Both Deuteronomy 4, verses 23 through 31, and Deuteronomy 32, verses 15 through 21, that, that should the people of God persist in rejecting God, as typified through false worship, among other things, God would not only exile His people from the land, He would in turn make a people who are not my people into my people. And in turn, Israel would grow jealous over this, just as God had grown jealous over Israel's adulterous worship of other gods. This, of course, is exactly what happens with Jonah's preaching at Nineveh. A people who were not God's people, that is the Ninevites, became his people. But Jonah, ministering during the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel, and remember at this point the people of God were divided between the southern kingdom of Judah, centered on Jerusalem and the throne of David, and the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, well, Jonah, as a faithful prophet, knew that the history preceding his time had been a succession of unfaithful and wicked kings in northern Israel who, in turn, had led their people into idolatry and unfaithfulness. Whereas the southern kingdom of Judah had ups and downs until it finally was all down, the northern kingdom was all down all the time, and it moved from Jeroboam the first egregious breaking of the second commandment in almost the exact same pattern as the golden calf incident at the foot of Mount Sinai to Ahab's outright worship of Baal. And Israel, as, as Judah would eventually do, even went so far as, as child sacrifice. So why did Jonah flee from his call? Well, it's because he knew that God was going to soon exile Israel and that he would do it through a people the Assyrians, who God would turn from not my people to my people. As Second King shows, this is exactly what happened. And this is why, for example, in his anger, Jonah says to God in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I mean, that's He's quoting Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, which in many ways are the theological center of the Bible. That's who God is. Jonah was so angry at God for doing this that he asked to die instead of live with this new reality of a believing Nineveh and soon-to-be exiled Israel. And so already what God says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, was coming to pass. They have made me jealous with what is no God. That's speaking of his people. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them 
jealous with those who are no people, like Nineveh. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, which is exactly what happens with Jonah. And I think it's fair to say he winds up representing the people of God. Well, with all that in place, we are in a good position to take up chapter 1 as a whole. Here's the first two verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, initially this sounds a lot like, say, Genesis 4 and the death of Abel, for God says, His blood cries out to me from the ground. But it's also reminiscent of Genesis 18 and the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah that was great and their sin was very grave and its outcry came to God as well. Now, as a quick aside, injustice never escapes God's attention and He does not turn a blind eye to it, though from our perspective it can certainly seem that way. So, for example, you know, before the two angels showed up in Sodom, and even when they were there, the people of that city did not see their judgment coming. So it seemed to them that life would keep on going pretty much as it always had. What's instructive with Nineveh is that unlike Sodom, God sends a prophet to warn the city of his coming judgment. So he's going to do something about their great sin one way or the other. And we could assume that perhaps Lot was supposed to play somewhat of that role in Sodom too. At least we can imagine his life and moral choices should speak in some way against his, his neighbors. But it seems as though instead he was accepted among them, at least in some measure. So that tells me he probably wasn't ever speaking against Sodom, certainly not like Jonah was called to do. Now, as another quick aside, Jonah's name means dove. It's worth mentioning that up front, and that will carry, I think, some symbolic weight once we get further into the text. Now, that Nineveh was a great city, and we talked about this last time, indicated via Genesis 10 that Nineveh well, it was not your run-of-the-mill pagan city. This city was in a similar class as Babylon in terms of being emblematic of a human city or a nation or a people group that was unified in its rejection of God. So in other words, Jonah was commanded to go into a version of a fiery furnace or a lion's den, just as Daniel and his friends were commanded to do in Babylon. This is one of the reasons why I think Jonah and Daniel are very comparable in many ways. Well, Jonah 1.3 tells us that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he attempted to go as far as possible, at least in his mind, in the opposite direction of Nineveh, but more so away from the presence of the Lord. Now, this phrase is repeated at the end of the verse after we are told he boarded a ship and went down into it. So that tells you this is very important. The presence of the Lord is often associated with his temple, rightly so, where he voluntarily put his name and chose to dwell among his people, like what is seen in the tabernacle in the wilderness or with the temple under Solomon. But Jonah doesn't live in Jerusalem, and he doesn't minister in the temple. In fact, he lives well outside of Jerusalem and most likely worshipped in rival and false worship centers established by Jeroboam I. Even so, despite the kingdom being divided, he's still in the promised land set apart by God for his people. So if Jonah 
can escape the land where God has chosen to dwell with his people, then perhaps he can escape God's command altogether. And what Jonah knew but was trying to reject is that God is not merely the God of Israel, but the God of all things, and there is no escaping his presence. It's like what David writes in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is in death, you are there. By the way, that that has some play in chapter 2 of Jonah. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, as I've already just briefly interjected there, assumes much of these same sorts of things too, and, and rightly so. See, Jonah knew better. He knew that God is the God of Israel, but also the God of, say, Tarshish and, and Nineveh too. He's the God of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. There is nowhere Jonah can go that will escape God's presence, even though he's trying to do that very thing. So Jonah, by trying to escape his call to preach to one set of Gentiles, that is the Assyrians in Nineveh, he decides to run with a different set of Gentiles, the sailors heading towards Tarshish, and he goes out into the sea. Now, it is important to recognize the Gentiles are often symbolized by the sea in the Bible. So if Israel is a people of the land, the Gentiles are a people of the sea, so to speak. This is all kind of symbolic. That's why, for example, the vision that Daniel sees in Daniel 7 of four beasts coming out of the great sea are of four successive Gentile empires. It's why even as Jesus is the Good Shepherd, a familiar image for Israelite leadership throughout the Old Testament, just think of Abraham or Moses or David, you know, an imagery for a people of the land, Jesus uses a different metaphor and goes looking for fishermen to lead his church who will go fishing for men, indicating that the people of God are going to radically expand to include the Gentile Sea. And it's not that Gentiles weren't included before. Of course they were. There's tons of examples of that. It's rather that Israel was going to move from the land into the Gentile Sea, that the kingdom of God was coming now to cover the whole world. Verses 4 through 16 provide really the bulk of the action of chapter 1 that most people, if they know anything about the book of Jonah, this is what they're familiar with. Now, there's a lot here, so I'm going to highlight just what I think are are some important things, and leave some other details for later. Verse 4 tells us that God hurled a great tempest at Jonah, even as the sailors hurled their cargo overboard, and in turn, Jonah tells them to hurl him into the sea, and they eventually concede to do it. So all that language is intentional. You're supposed to read all of those things as tied together. There are many storms that happen in Scripture, of course, not least of which is connected with Jesus in Matthew 8, that matches with this story in a near beat-for-beat way, as does the story with Paul and his shipwreck in Acts 27. So if this series uh, of podcasts does not linger too terribly long, I may do a comparison of Jonah, Jesus, and Paul 
and their respective storms later down the road and why, why they're written in the way that they are and why they are connected in the way that they are. Now, a question I raised when I was originally kind of doing this, this series uh, this past spring on one of our Sunday nights is the question, what is our modern assumption about storms? Well, our assumption is that they are completely natural events, unconnected with God in any way. Now, he may have control over it, and we may certainly pray about them even as Christians, but more often than not, we tend to think of them as merely uh, a naturalistic phenomenon. And I think that's not only false, but it denies the sovereignty of God. So just because we do not know the reason why God sent a storm, like, say, Katrina in 2004 that hit New Orleans, and he has not revealed his reasons why, does not mean he did not send it or that it was purely naturalistic. In fact, I don't believe there's any such thing as purely naturalistic. But what was the assumption of the ancient people in terms of storms like that? Well, their assumption was that some god or gods was involved with the running of the world, or at least their land or the area they were in, including things like storms. So both Jonah and the sailors share that assumption, even as they worship different gods. This is why the sailors resorted to casting lots. They, they recognized that some god was directing the course of events, and they had some idea that this storm was not a normal storm and that one of them was at fault for it. Jonah 1.5 has a detail uh, that is often misunderstood among modern readers. As the sailors are doing everything they possibly can, to keep the ship afloat, Jonah is down in the hull of the ship in deep sleep. Readers often find this to be a pretty weird detail, as in, you know, how can anyone be sleeping in a ship during a storm like that? I mean, personally, I struggled to keep it together in three-foot waves uh, on a boat that is, you know, a mile off sea, let alone a great tempest. If you read this detail in conversation with other sleep moments in the Old Testament, what you will see is that Jonah is not merely sleeping. This is the sleep of death. It's like what God did with Adam in Genesis 2. He puts him into a deep sleep, a sleep like unto death, and in turn separates Adam into two and creates woman from him. You see the same language at work with Abraham in Genesis 15 when God put him into a deep sleep, and in turn, Abraham had the vision of cutting the covenant with God. You see a negative version of this with Sisera in Judges 4, which leads to uh, Jael driving a tent peg through his head as he slept. You see this with Daniel in Daniel 10, when he receives a vision of what was to come after him in the latter days that lead all the way up to Jesus. And of course, Jesus himself was asleep in the boat in Matthew Eight in, in ways similar to this one. So the deep sleep, or really the sleep of death, either leads to a form of new creation or new life, like in the person of Eve, you know, Adam must die in order to gain his bride, or covenant-making or covenant renewal, like what you see with Abraham, or it leads to judgment and death, like what happened with Sisera. In the case of Jonah here, I think this is the first step to his repentance and really to a kind of covenant renewal with his God. And it leads to his beautiful confession of faith in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So 
Whereas before he was trying to escape God's command, almost like uh, the fool of the, of the book of Proverbs and, and the Psalms, acting as if there was no God, here, after his sleep of death, he does not hide from God, and he goes so far as to give a good confession. He says, Yahweh is the God of the Jews, the Hebrews, and the Gentiles, the God who rules from heaven and made the seas and the dry land. Verse 10 seems to indicate that these sailors not only believe that Jonah's God is exactly who Jonah says he is, they can't believe he would be so dumb as to run from them. And it's, in a lot of ways, a great question, and it's exactly the sort of question God had been putting to his own people for generations. In verse 11, the sailors ask, What shall we do to you, that is you, Jonah, that the sea may quiet down for us? Jonah tells the sailors that the storm will end if they hurl him, there's that language again, into the sea, but they did not want to do it. So in other words, they must hurl Jonah into the sea even as God hurled a storm at the boat. It's a moment of substitutionary atonement. That is, an Israelite, a Hebrew, will die for the life of the people, these Gentiles on the boat. In this moment, and we may come back to this in the following weeks, uh, has, at least in more detail, has hints of Noah and the flood as much as it has more obvious associations with Jesus. Jonah, the dove, that's his name, remember, through his substitutionary death will bring life to the boat. Now, of course, in Noah's day, the ark was a symbolic representation of the world containing all of humanity in the animal kingdom in a three-tiered pattern of heaven, earth, and the seas below that comes directly from Genesis 1, even as the ark on the face of the water was a return to Genesis 1-2, when the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the flood story is obviously a judgment. It's a de-creation, so to speak, that leads to a new creation. So God breaks things apart only to build them back. God kills in order to make alive. And for good reason, in the flood story, the Spirit of God is represented by the dove, just as it is at Jesus' baptism. Remember in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering, and you get that bird-like picture hovering over the face of the deep. So here, Jonah the dove, carried over the face of the water, leads to new life, both on the boat, but also for the Assyrians. Now, I've probably said enough in just that short uh, little bit to confuse you, but it's enough to say this, that the Gentiles are saved through the life of Jonah, which, as we're going to see as we go along, winds up being a picture of what Israel was supposed to do for the world. Even so, not wanting to kill Jonah, they tried to get back to the dry land, and I have to wonder if Jonah is purposely repeating the same phrase in verse 13, from his own confession of faith, as in, these Gentiles of the sea could not find life in the land on their own, no matter how hard they rode. But what was required for them to have life in the land, in the presence of God, no less, was the death of Jonah. So in 1.14, the sailors say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now, it's interesting that they recognize that Jonah 
is not a wicked man, though clearly he's disobedient at this point. Why else would God be sending a storm? And they do not want his blood on them. They don't want to put to death what they think is an innocent man. And what makes this, this moment so striking to me is that this is the exact opposite view that the, the crowds outside of Pilate's headquarters took with Jesus. His blood be on us and our children, even as they called for him to be crucified. And by the way, the reason I keep making allusions to Jesus is because Jesus himself does this. In Matthew 12, Jesus says this. Well, the the first line is, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, and then these are Jesus' words, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In my view, Jonah 2, uh, chapter 2, with the great fish as a clear death and resurrection theme, figures in understanding what, what Jesus means in Matthew 12, which is clearly about death and resurrection, but As important as that is, it's not the only thing Jesus has in mind when he says no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. I think Jesus means for us to read the whole book in light of him and to interpret Jesus by way of that and see many of the same connections there together. Okay, Jonah 1.16 tells us that the sailors feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Well, that, that is conversion language. That's conversion language. So whatever gods they worship previous to that, they now worship Yahweh, the true God of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. So like Naaman in 2 Kings 5, who sought healing through a prophet of Israel, Elisha, also of the northern kingdom, and in turn offered vows and sacrifices once he was converted these sailors also genuinely repent. And as we will discuss down the road, the irony of these Old Testament Gentile moments with Israelite prophets is that Israel was not responding to God's word and actions, most notably with famine and a lack of rain, extreme hardships on the people of the land, right? Even as here, these Gentiles of the sea they do respond to the hardships of a great storm. So who is Israel when she refuses to listen to her God's word? Who are the Gentiles when they do listen to God's word and respond to it? Well, finally, in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, it says that God appointed a great fish, not unlike that great city, Nineveh, to swallow Jonah, and he was in the great fish for three days and three nights. So Jonah was sacrificed by being hurled into the Gentile Sea, something he was trying to avoid by going to Nineveh the Great, another symbolic Gentile Sea. In turn, he was in the belly of the fish, or the tomb, for three days and three nights. And we are left wondering, okay, what will happen next? Like Joseph in Egypt, will there be a kind of resurrection unto life? And if so, what will the end result of that resurrection be? Well, more on that next time.